All right, good morning. Uh, good to see you. Um, I guess we had to expect that the weather would eventually change, and it has, so we'll see how long that lasts, but um, maybe for some of you are excited. I'm not. I would rather have it be 67 outside, but I guess that's not a realistic expectation in New York in the month of February, so that's all right. This, uh, we are in the sixth week of a 10-week series entitled uh, Free, and we're looking at the book of Galatians. Uh, freedom is really the concept that um, I wanted to work through when I th- started of thinking going through the book of Galatians. It's a concept that's stirred my imagination for a while now because of the complexity that exists within the idea of freedom. We all may feel like we are free, but the Apostle Paul is trying to teach us through this book is that to be truly free, we must not only have the ability or the right to do something, but we must also be able to walk away from what we've done with our abilities and our rights, without destructive consequences. If we cannot walk away from our free choices that we think we are making, that we have the right or the ability to, if we cannot walk away without destructive consequences, then we truly are not free. But Paul is trying to tell us that there is a path to freedom. There is the path to freedom, and that pathway to freedom is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Simply put, the gospel of Jesus Christ is just simply the story of how God is putting the world back to rights through his son, Jesus Christ. In the first week of our series, and I know I've kind of reviewed this and it'll feel a little bit uh, repetitive, but that's okay. I have this kind of vision or heart in my mind that one day, all of us, after we've, we've listened, to my, uh, listened to me well, and if I listen to myself well, that I can outline the book of Galatians in my mind, and that's kind of part of my thought process with this. So I'm trying to make this as simple as I can and give you a week by week of what is going on in Paul's argument. So maybe later on, you know, if you're at a party and you're trying to impress someone, you can say, I know the entire flow of the book of Galatians. Anyway, in week one, we saw in the first couple verses, verses one through 12, that um, Paul is defining the gospel in the, the gospel message of salvation. This gospel is simply, as we just said, the story of how God is putting the world back to rights, but he is telling us how we can be a part of that story. And he tells us that the gospel includes two key components of how we can come to salvation. The first is who we are. We are sinners in need of rescuing. This is one of the most important truths that we can miss so easily. Over and over, I've talked about this man who is in the water and he is drowning. We've talked about this man who doesn't even realize he's drowning if he's us, because our drowning takes a lifetime. But this man who is in the water, he is drowning. And he doesn't need a good teacher. He doesn't need a good example. He needs someone to simply rescue him. And that was what Paul says we are. We are sinners in need of rescue. And Paul also says the second core truth of the gospel is that Jesus is our rescuer. Through the person of Jesus, through what he has done for us, we can be rescued from our sin. In the second week, we looked at the story of Paul and how he came to this conclusion. Paul was a man, before he came to Christ, who was a religious leader. He was not someone who was seeking out truth. He already thought he possessed truth. He was a teacher of truth. And maybe you've been around someone like that. They don't listen to you. They impart things to you. Those people aren't real fun to be around, yes? But that was Paul. He was not a seeker. He was an imparter. And he thought he knew what was right. 
and he was religious. So he was not looking for a other religious category to train him. He thought he knew what he uh, knew, and he was going to punish and make persecute anyone who did not agree with him. But it is into this context that Jesus appears to him in a vision and everything changes in an instant. And you can read about his story in Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 through 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 10. In week 3, we looked at the question, what makes us acceptable before God? And saw that Paul's answer was, we are made acceptable to God through our faith in Jesus, not through the law. Or we might say it more clearly, not by what we do. We cannot do anything that is enough to make us acceptable before God, but we are declared acceptable before God through our faith in his son, Jesus Christ. In week four, we saw that we are not only made acceptable before God through our faith in Jesus Christ, but we also grow in our faith, or grow through our faith in Jesus Christ. That every single decision we make, we must put sort of through this paradigm of... um, What would it look like to have radical trust in God or radical faith in God for my decisions in every area of life? And then last week, after Paul talking so much about the law and what it cannot do, we saw what the law is. The law is a quarantine, a temporary quarantine, a necessary quarantine between the time of promise and fulfillment. It kind of keeps us safe until there's a cure for what is wrong with us, and what is wrong with us is our sin. And the cure is his son, Jesus Christ. Now, we come to week six, which means as soon as I started speaking this morning, we are more than halfway done with this series. We come to week six, and we come to a passage, Galatians chapter three, verses 26 through chapter four, verse seven, in which Paul has another core question that he is going to introduce to us, and it's it's gonna introduce a whole new idea. Now that Paul has established that we are accepted by God through faith in Christ, Paul is going to address a normal question that would be going on in all of our hearts and all of our minds. What is my status before God? I have been accepted by God, but what does that make me? How does God see me? Maybe I even like that question better. What is my status before God? Or maybe more clearly, how does God see me when he looks at me? What is he seeing? We see an awful lot of things when we look in the mirror, but this text is all about how does God look at us, and it is incredibly freeing and maybe even a little surprising, and it's definitely hard to believe, and it's wonderful. And so I want to draw your attention to it this morning, our text, Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through chapter 4, verse 7, and you can find that on the blue books in front of you, the Bible on page 944. But I would encourage you all to turn there, 944. You can find it in your own Bible if you brought one. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 26. And we're going to be reading through chapter 4, verse 7. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. For what I am saying is this, that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, 
The heir is subject to his guardian and trustees until this time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental forces of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. So here's what's going on here. And to to kind of orient your minds to it, I'll give you uh, a quick image. Imagine yourself, and for some of you, this will be easier than others. Even for me, it's getting hard. Imagine you are a fresh college graduate and you've just completed your undergrad studies and now you've got all those bills and you've got to start working, you know? That's why your parents went through all that effort to get you through college so that you would one day work, not so that you could sit there and play video games all day. And so you're out of college and you, I don't know what your career field is, you can just supply that for me, and uh, in your minds, not out loud. That's the cool thing about our kind of tradition. I only get to talk, you have to listen. Yeah, some of you, anyway. Anyway, so you're just uh, fresh out of college and in your field, there's this one company that you've always dreamed of working for. They're kind of like the big deal, you know? So if you're a computer person, maybe it's Apple and Bill Gates is your man. But you are fresh out of college and you are eager to get to work. You're eager to use everything that you've learned and you land that job at your dream job. That is your dream job, right? The place that you've always wanted to work and you've got a key fob, and you've got an ID card, and like when you swipe that in front of that little thing, it lets you in the door, and you show your ID card, and they let you through security, and you're good. You are in the building. But you soon find out, through all your idealism of going through college, and you've got ideas that you can think you can change the world, and you're going to do it quickly, but you soon find out that many people in your company do not really care about your ideas. In fact, they don't even care about you all that much. You find out that although there is that big man or woman that you've always uh, looked up to and wanted to meet, and every so often you may get a glimpse of her as she walks by, but you never get to meet her. In fact, the person who is your direct report hasn't even met her, and that's the person you're picking up coffee for, right? And so there you are. You are accepted you got the key fob and the ID card. You can get in the building. But you're not even known. You just get coffee and don't share your ideas too much. Now, I'm not saying that that's necessarily bad. And many, many of you may have gone through that circumstances, circumstance or that situation. It's kind of the way of the world. And we kind of all understand that, you know. You work hard, you keep your head down, you move up the ladder, and it takes time, and it takes hard work, and, you know, it it kind of applies to everything. You know, I don't know if it's still this way, but when I was in uh, high school and sports, when I was a freshman, I just expected to get thrown in the trash can, you know? I think things have improved now, you know? I expected that I would have to carry the soccer balls around, you know? That was the expectation. And I guess there's something to paying your dues But I think since our mindset is so cued around this idea of keeping your head down and moving up the ladder and taking your time, I think it's hard for us to understand what Paul is saying in this passage. And I'll just tell you what the overarching idea is. Sometimes I wait to the end to tell you, but I'm going to tell you right here at the beginning. 
what makes us, you know, how does God see us? What is our status before God? Paul says right at the outset in verse 26, you are sons of God through faith in Christ. What Paul is saying, simply put, it didn't take me a lot of creativity to come up with this statement, is that faith in Christ makes us sons of God. If you look at verse 26, you'll notice very quickly that makes us is in the, uh, you know, present tense. Makes us. Right now, you are sons of God through faith in Christ. There is no working your way up the ladder with God. No keeping your head down, getting thrown into trash cans and carrying around the dirty laundry. You are sons of God. You know what this text is really speaking of? It's speaking of adoption, isn't it? It is speaking of a time when you have gone from one status to another status, and it is instantaneous. I don't know if... um, I like movies like this every so often. It's, it's kind of, I don't know, fun, but healthy, I think, to go through this process of imagining what it would be like. But, you know, you watch these movies. There was one, uh, there's all kinds of them, you know, but movies of kids that are in orphanages or foster care, and they finally, what is their dream? Their dream is to be adopted and to be put into a family. But oftentimes, these movies, they follow the storyline when they finally are. There is this process that they must go through to understanding that they truly have a new status now, that they truly are children of their adopted parents, that they're not seen as second class, but they're seen as, you know, first class, loved and accepted with all of the rights that go along with being in the family. Now, The text is speaking of present tense, and the main emphasis of where I want to go with this sermon is actually going to be in chapter 4, in verses 4 through 6. But to get to that section, I want to go and do a little work, and I'm going to do it quickly, but I want to do a little work so you understand what is going on with this text before we get there. First off, I want to point out to you that the language that Paul uses here of sons of God, he is not a designation between masculine and feminine. Uh, It's actually a designation defining the legal heir. That's what it's all about. It has nothing to do with like, you know, all the women in the room. You're not really part of God's family. It has to do with being an heir of God. Paul does this similarly in the other way when he calls the church the bride of Christ. He's using feminine language to refer not to just, mascu- not to just women, but to masculine and feminine. And he's doing the same thing in the opposite direction here. In fact, what Paul is saying here if we understand the context, is not only including women, but it is radically, we might say, egalitarian. What Paul is saying into a culture in which only predominantly the male could inherit the inheritance of their deceased father, and generally it was the firstborn son who would get to inherit everything. Everyone else? Keep a good relationship with the firstborn son, I guess, right? But into this context of which the son, predominantly the firstborn son, gets everything, Paul writes and says, and you see it in your text in verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith, children of God through faith. What Paul is saying is that we all get to inherit radically egalitarian, including taking down the barriers between male 
and female. The text continues, and we see it in verse 28, and unless we had any confusion about it, he talks about how this concept that we are all children of God is not only radically egalitarian and breaking down gender differences, but it also breaks down cultural differences, and it breaks down socioeconomic or class differences. For in Jesus Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither are better. In Jesus Christ, there is neither slave nor free, socioeconomic, class. And in Jesus Christ, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ, because you are all sons of God. This is how God sees us even if we do not always see ourselves this way. As the text continues, and we can look at it in verses 4, 1 through 3, the author, Paul, he goes through and he kind of talks about what it looks like to not realize your designation. You have a status, but you can't realize the full implications of your status. He talks about a son who, although he is heir of the entire estate, is still under a guardian and has to do what that guardian says, although he owns everything that the guardian goes under. This is Paul's way of saying that the law, who he just referred to in chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, is our guardian, saying that the law was our guardian, and as long as we live under the law, we can never experience the full blessings or the full rights of being sons of God. But in verses 4 through 6, which is where we could focus on different things, but this is really where I want to focus the crux of this message and what I want you to take away this morning. And it's really in just two simple things that we find out about being a son of God. The first is that God sent his son to give us a new status. And we see in our text in verses four and five that it's implied that where did God send us his son? He sent him into the world, didn't he? And why did he send them? To redeem us so that we might receive the full rights of sonship. In these concepts, we learn something about God. First, we learn something about the person of Jesus Christ, that although he was God from eternity past, due to the love of the Father and due to the love of the Son, both were willing. God was willing to send and Jesus was willing to go. And in that way, Jesus became the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, God amongst us in the flesh. The Apostle John in John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and He dwelt among us and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten Father. In Colossians 1.15, Paul says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. God himself in the person of Jesus Christ was sent into the world. And why did he do this? To redeem us. And we talked about this the last uh, week or two. Redeem just means to buy back, to redeem us, that we might receive the full rights as sons. Now, most people think of salvation largely in negative terms. And just kind of follow and stay with me as I go through this. Oftentimes, and, and maybe I won't project onto you, but oftentimes for me, when I heard the salvation message all through growing up, it was generally in negative terms, in terms of what we can avoid. And obviously that was a motivating factor. It was hell, right? Salvation was couched in terms 
of what we can avoid. We can avoid hell. Why should we witness and why should we tell other people about Jesus? So that they can avoid hell. It was largely couched in negative terms, what you can avoid. Now, obviously, I've already got my whole year planned out with sermons, but I'm going to do something on hell pretty soon. I really want to do this because I feel like it would help us immensely. Hell is not spoken about in the Bible nearly as much as you might think. There's other topics that are like this. It's actually referred to only 14 times in the entire Bible, all New Testament. Uh, 12 of the 14 are in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And there's only, I think, six passages where hell is referred to. This does not mean that it's not a real place. Of course, it's a real place, a physical place. But the point I'm trying to make is that hell, while referred to and real, is never really the predominating, uh, motivating, predominant motivating factor of why you should experience salvation. Now, I remember growing up having all kinds of things go on in my life. I can remember becoming a Christian 50 times because of the hell message. I can remember speakers putting red lights with like, uh, you know how they have those fans that have those little red streamers and the, the fan would blow the streamers and... Um, they would put a man over in that corner and they would call him Lazarus and how he would just wish he could get out of there, you know? It's an effective tool to guilt people and make them feel like they don't want to go there. I get that. And as a child, that was effective in getting me to say the Lord's Prayer. But listen to me real closely. That is not really salvation. Repeat after me because you don't want to go, you know, where the fans are blowing. Uh, hell, right? It's not effective. Is it true? Yes, it is. Now, what is hell? I love talking about this stuff because it never really gets talked about, and we need to be challenged on this. So if you talk about this at lunch, awesome. You deserve, you need to. Hell in the Bible is not, it's always referred to metaphorically. I'm going to spend some time on this. It's always referred to metaphorically. Metaphorically of a real place. It's like, uh, when we're young, you know, we get our first car, and our first car usually stinks, you know? It's got rust all over it. Now, if I was to look at that first car and say, man, that's a rust bucket, I'm referring to a real object in a metaphorical way. That's what the Bible does with hell. It refers to it as a place of fiery darkness. Do you see? Fiery darkness. Follow that logic, metaphor. It refers to it as a place of fiery darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, and that Oftentimes, the motivating thing is it is better to follow God than to not follow God. These are almost all of the usages in the Gospels about hell. Better to follow God than not to follow God. You know, so if your eye causes you to stumble, it is better to pluck your eye out or to cut your arm off and, and cast it away than to have your whole body thrown into hell. That is almost predominantly all of the usages in the Gospels. And they repeat, you know, parallel passages. Hell the best understanding that I could give you of hell, it is a place, a physical and real place where the presence of God is no longer. The best uh, description I've learned about this comes from St. Augustine. He's a 4th and 5th century scholar uh, and priest. And he referred to there being two spheres of existence on this world, the city of God and the city of self. And one day when God returns, these two spheres will be separated. If you've listened to me very long at all, you've heard me talk about this. Heaven is that sphere where only God's presence is, and hell is that sphere where there is no presence of God whatsoever. But hell should not be the motivating 
factor for why we come to faith. Just this last week in small group, we were talking, and our conversation veered, and we often don't do my discussion questions. I put them together, and I don't care if anybody does them. I just hope you talk about the Bible and you talk about something that's meaningful. But this past week, for some reason, we veered onto the topic of hell, and someone had had somebody come forward and say to them uh, how offensive it is, you know, and how somebody else has said, you know, I really hope you come to Jesus because I don't want you to go to hell, and how offensive that was. Now, I believe that's true. I do. That those who do not place their faith in Christ go to hell. How that works, I am really, really grateful that I don't know, yeah? And God will do that perfectly and justly, and he can figure that out because he is like more powerful, wise than me. But salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone, and how that looks and how that works, you know, I don't know. But notice that Paul's motivating factor as far as what the gospel does for us is not what it keeps us from, hell, But what it does for us, it makes us sons of God. In John 17, verse 3, the Apostle John in his high priestly prayer, where Jesus uh, records Jesus' high priestly prayer, it's his last prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane before he is about to go to the cross. And Jesus prays something very interesting. He says, now this is eternal life, to know the Father through the Son whom he has sent. Do you pick up what Jesus is saying? That eternal life begins here and it begins now. This is eternal life. To know, present tense, the Father through his Son whom he has sent. What Paul is saying is something similar. That he is wanting you to experience what it means to be a son of God. And he wants you to experience it right here and right now. Have you ever stopped to think about all of the blessings that we are offered through being a son of God. Why do I want my friends and family and coworkers and neighbors to experience the love and the beauty of Christ? Of course I want them to not go to hell. But I want them to experience what it means in a world where everything is based on what we look like, who we, what we can do, what we can offer someone else. I want, I want my friends, family, coworkers, and neighbors to experience right here and right now the blessing of eternal life that begins before we die, of being accepted as a son of God, as being approved, as having intimacy with our perfect heavenly father here and now, as having freedom from their guilt and brand new life in Jesus Christ. These are all things that God offers us and should motivate us. And think about it with me for a moment. If hell was your motivating factor of why you said a prayer and whatever that meant to you, then I assure you it is not a strong enough motivating factor to cause you to live your entire life for God. The gospel is the story of how God is putting the world back to rights and how salvation is the message of how you get to be a part of it, not just in the future, but here and forevermore. Amen. And so... God sent his son to give us a new status that we might be made sons of God. But yet, so many of us don't want to be his sons. Now, stay with me for a second. And to understand what I mean, I want to turn your Bible, you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, verses 17 through 19. 
This is one of the most famous parables that Jesus gives. And keep your finger in Galatians, because we'll come back to it, and I hardly ever do this, but today it's worth it. Luke chapter 15, verses 17 through 19, and the passage can be found for you on page 849 if you're using the Pew Bible. This is one of the most famous and beautiful passages. It's the story of the prodigal son. But I want you to hear something that Jesus says in this little story he gives. Follow along with me in verse 17. The story is the prodigal son. The context is a son who has asked his father for his inheritance and left his family. (laughs) I do love kids. I really do. It is such a shame that we cannot remember those times when we get older. Those are the best of years. We had to do nothing and everything is given to us. That applies to what I'll say in a second. Now, verses 17 through 19 The context is the prodigal son. A son has left his father, asked him for his inheritance. Imagine how insulting that is. Give me what's mine. You're not dead. But give me what's mine, even though you're not dead. The son goes and squanders the entire inheritance. And now, in the heart of his hearts, he is working at a pig farm with no pay, but he does get to eat the pig slop. And here's what the son thinks. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my Fathers, hired servants, have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, we generally think of this as repentance and humility on the part of the son, but it isn't. It isn't. Here's a son who has lived his whole life doing things that he shouldn't do. Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my money now. Not a good idea to build intimacy with your father. And now he has come to his senses. And rather than go back to his father and say, I'm so sorry I hurt you. Will you take me back? He says, make me one of your hired servants. Just give me a second chance to do it on my own and prove that I'm okay. Imagine if you had a child. And if you're a good parent, a good mother, a good father, and your child strays, what is the prayer and what is your thought process as that is happening? It is not. They have shamed me. I hope they suffer for their their shame. I hope they get what they deserve. I think that's often what goes on in the part of the child, just like we see in the parable of the prodigal. How could my father and mother love me now that I have done what I have done? But that, I wish, sometimes I wish those children who think of their parents that way, I wish I could kind of just gently, lovingly shake them really hard. And I could say to them, no parent thinks that way. You feel like you don't deserve, and of course you don't, but no parent thinks that way. I remember when my first child was born, I didn't even go through the pain of, you know, you know. I don't need to describe what goes on in that room. It's better that that stays there. Yes? (laughs) It's bloody. They had to give me juice. There's my wife, you know, she's a... She's giving birth to the child, and I need a juice because I'm about to be faint, you know, (laughs) watching the process. 
But you know, we love, we nurture, we, we do everything. And even if that child strays, you know what we're thinking? We're thinking back to that room and that blood and those scrapes and all that love that we've given to our kids over and over and over. And they go think to themselves, how could my parents love me? And the parents just have their arms open wide. And the prodigal father, what does he do? Every day he goes to the end of his street. He's really wealthy, really long driveway. Didn't live in a climate where they needed to plow. And every day he goes down that road. And every day he's looking. And every day he's looking. And when he comes, the son comes. And the son says, I'm not worthy. And the father wraps his arms around him and kisses him, kills the fatted calf and throws him a party. For what is lost has been found. My son has returned. And so many of us, we go to our heavenly father with the relationship of one who believes we must earn back what we've done wrong. Just give us a second chance When God is saying to us, I am your perfect heavenly father. My arms are open wide. You don't need to prove anything. Just let me wrap my arms around you for I love you. And I'm willing to give you everything that belongs to me because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. And yet we'd live like hired servants and we'd feel better about it thinking we've earned it. When God is telling us, don't try to earn, just accept my love. God sent his son to give us a new status, and the status is that of sons, but just like the prodigal son, we often feel as though we are not. And that's what Paul comes to in verse 6 of Galatians chapter 4. Look at it with me. Because you are his sons, God has sent. Notice how the language sent The same language is used in verse 4 and 5 of Christ being sent, but now someone else is sent. Because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of God into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. God sent his Son to give us a new status, but God sent the Spirit to give us a new experience of our status. Um, Where does he send the Spirit? He sends him into our hearts. And why did he send them? To aid us so that we can call out to God, Abba, Father. We sang that in the little prayer that um, we sang together that Chris did. It's just beautiful that Chris and the worship team let us in. Abba, Father is really like baby talk. It's like Aramaic and Abba just means like daddy. It's like, uh, it's like um, when our little kids, you know, when they first learn to speak and some of them, their first words or second words are like dada. That's what Abba Abba means. It's baby talk. And the Spirit comes into our hearts to help us do this baby talk. What does Paul mean? I think I have a clue. Have you ever noticed how a child does not need to be convinced that their parents love them? As they get older, for some reason, we grow out of this. But a child never needs to be convinced that their parents love them, do they? I do this weird thing, maybe you did this with your kids, but I do this weird thing and I, I, I grab my kids and I hug them and I kiss them and I say, um, do you think I love you? And, and uh, they always say yes. My youngest says, and then I always ask, I always do this. I always say, why would you possibly think that? It's just my silly little thing I do with them. And Jackson, my three-year-old, he always says, I just do. 
you know, and I'll ask him again, he just says, I just do. I think that's like a three-year-old understanding. I just do. I just think that. But my six-year-old, my eight-year-old, Harrison and Walton, they always say, because you're my daddy. That's why you love me, because you're my daddy. A child doesn't have to be convinced that the father loves him. And as I pick up my little kids and I hold them and, you know, my three-year-old kind of giggles, my six- and eight-year-old just kind of smile big, act sort of embarrassed, but you can tell they like it. Uh, They never need to be convinced of my love. Unfortunately, we grow out of that, but the experience of the Spirit is given to us so that we might renew that experience. And for some of us, we know And we've been in church long enough to know that we are sons of God. And we have that status through what Jesus has done on our behalf. But the Spirit is sent. The Spirit of His Son. So that we might experience that status in a new way. It's like... It's like when you're walking down the road and you're holding your son's hand and and you're walking there. And it's It's nice. And he knows that you care about him. But when you pick him up and you tell him I love him and you give him that hug, there's that emotion. And the Spirit helps us with the experience of that emotion. Some of us aren't emotional people. I don't know. I tend to be like that sometimes. But do you not want to have that feeling of how deeply our Heavenly Father cares for you? That comes through the Spirit. But I want to close by helping you see how it comes. It comes to the Spirit, but what we have to remember is that verse 6, the Spirit working on our behalf, the Spirit of His Son helping us to cry out, Abba, Father, comes after verses 4 and 5 on the reality of what Christ has done for us. It comes on the reality of what Christ has already done for us. And I think the implication that Paul is trying to get at here is that the Spirit work always comes on the basis of the work of Christ. And to experience the work of the Spirit, we need to take some time to engage and meditate on what the Son has done for us. And as we engage and meditate, and as we ponder, and as we, as we think through how deeply the Father loves us as a result and proved it to us by giving us His Son, and as we dwell on that, And as we meditate on that, we experience the work of our spirit where we are overwhelmed with the love of God. We are overwhelmed with what he has done for us. If you aren't experiencing that, I know in my own personal life that that time comes and goes, but I've also noticed it's directly correlated to the time that I put into not doing anything, but meditating on what Christ has done for me. And I've noticed that as I meditate on what Christ has done for me, it makes me a lot less likely to do things that would not please Christ. Do you see how that all works? And so, when do you have quiet time where you just sit and think of what Christ has done for you? If you are not experiencing the work of the Spirit helping you like a little child to see the intimacy that you have with your heavenly father, then ask yourself, when's the last time I've sat and I've just prayed 
and meditated and asked God like a child. God, I'm not feeling it now, but could you help me feel it? I'm convinced God wants us to pray prayers like this. God is the most beautiful thing, and he should be to us. But when we miss his beauty, we lack his joy. We must meditate on what he's done for us, independent of our circumstances, for the truest test of the person who has been touched by the life of God is they want God independent of what he gives them. And I have to challenge myself with this all the time. Do I pray and do I love God so that I can have a beautiful wife? Check, you know. So that I can have beautiful kids? So that I can have a good life and a good job and a good house and a good car or whatever? Or do I love God? Am I just blown away by his beauty just for who he is? The way you are, know you are experiencing God is if you find him beautiful. And you find him beautiful by dwelling on what he has done. And it's just a part of our humanness that we are so quick to forget. And so this morning, you've heard me say a lot of different words. But as you go away, I want you to remember that you are sons of God and that God wants you to have that full experience, everything it means to be a son. And he wants you to have that now and forever. Let me pray for you. Father, we are so grateful for what you've done for us through your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. For those of us who've seen the beauty of Christ Help us to stay close, to see it again. And for those of us who have never seen, by your Spirit, open their eyes so they can see what Christ has done on their behalf. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we might be called the sons of God. Amen.